right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. And even though we had we took a week off, uh, uh, you know, what was that, a week or two ago, we are back to back. Look at we, us. No, look at, no, no time off. Right back at it. Yeah. Hey, this is Ollie. And this is Scott. And this is Science in Between. Here we uh, are. Here we are. So, uh, so today we're going to be uh, chatting a little bit about um, a question that, that I think I get a lot because one of the big shifts, one of the big shifts that we talk about a lot on, on this podcast is the shift towards, um, you know, a community of practice sort of focus on, on scientific practices. And that means there's a lot of group work and there's a lot of whole class discussion and there's shifting back and forth between those things. Um, and so one of the things my students ask me a lot is like, well, how do we know, like, how right. do we decide, okay, yeah, they've been in small groups long enough and now it's time to talk in a whole group. Or how do we know when we're done with the whole group thing and now it's time to send them back into small groups. And is, is that a pattern that we do every day where we say like, okay, they're in small groups until the very end and then we bring them together? Or is there some other way of, of gauging how that, how those decisions get made? And I, you know, I think it's a good question. And I think there are, it's made me think about like, what are the sort of guidelines um, and, and maybe there are others that'll come up in the context of this, of thinking about, you know, we're, there are never going to be rules for how to run a classroom like this, but there are ways, you know, there are guidelines, there are heuristics, yeah. there are patterns that get recognized over time that can be useful. So I think that's what I'm really interested in talking about is like, what are those patterns that we see in classroom talk that can be helpful in thinking about um, how you might organize your time? I think we both value those social classrooms in which that, that meaning making is happening and we want to structure classrooms in which that can happen. And, and I think there are definitely some benefits to doing that in small groups versus large groups um, and knowing when to transition from one to the, to the other. I would say, you know, if there's one part of my, my teaching that I feel like I'm really good at setting up groups, um, but I, I feel like I still struggle sometimes with asking really good questions. And mm. I mean, I, that's like one of those, you know, ongoing, you know, struggles for a lot of teachers is asking good questions and consistently asking good questions. And sometimes the best questions I ask are the ones that are like off the cuff, right? Like where sure. I'm like, I'm seeing where, where the direction of the classroom conversation is going. And I'm like, hold on, let me, let, I'm going to stop. Let's, let's throw this out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, there's definitely, you know, you know, you get in those patterns of like, okay, think, think pair share. There's all those like really, you know, uh, tr- I don't want to call them trite, but they kind of are, mm-hmm. You know, those those active learning strategies that they tell you to put into they tell you to put into, uh, you know, your classrooms to try to you know do that. And some of it just becomes, you know, almost mechanistic and yep. rote, you know, yep. and, and that's I think what you're suggesting here is to move away from that, where it's like, OK, I'm going to give you, you know, two minutes on the timer. OK, go. Yeah. And then, OK, and now talk to your tar- partner. OK, yeah. now share your ideas. And I think you're looking for, you know, something a little bit more than that. Like, what are the, you know, I don't know, what are the markers or what are the things that we should be looking for as teachers to transition from, you know, small group to large group or large group to small group? Sure. But I, but I do think, I mean, your point is really well taken in that I think one of the, one of the challenges about doing that, even doing what we're talking about now is that it can become, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, it can become a rule, right? And then once right. it's a rule, like you're saying, then it becomes mechanistic. Then it's like, oh, well, here's, I always do X. 
Um, and if you're always doing X, that's bad um, because classrooms are meant to be responsive places. So there shouldn't be a rule that tells you how to do everything from minute to minute that it does require, you know, as, as Thomas Phillip would describe it, uh, disciplined improvisation, which is to say you're improvising, but you're improvising within a framework. You're trying to accomplish something. Um, You're trying to, you know, keep the class uh, guided towards, towards the tasks and the, the outcomes that you care about. But that also, you know, can become, oh, well, I'm just marching them down the path to the answer. And that's bad, you know, because that, that kids recognize that and the, and the classroom becomes then this sort of um, illusion of control sometimes is the descriptor that I've used. And I've used it both positively and negatively, right? So this idea that kids are, are kids actually in control of the way the classroom, you know, where they're going? Well, you know, the more of that that you can give them, the better, but there are limits like you're just, you're defining the phenomenon. You're, you have, you have learning goals in mind. So you can't entirely just let them talk about whatever they want. Yeah. You you can't let it be completely open or it's just going to be sometimes chaos. Right. You know, I do, I do, I, you, you've mentioned that discipline improvisation before, and I just love that. I just love that. And I think that's what we're. I guess the focus is, is, you know, where's the discipline and the improvisation around discussions, you know, where, where does the discipline come from? Because it can't just be complete improvisation because you have to, you know, at least be paying attention to something. Right. And, you know, so let's start with, um, you know, when is it better to do something small group or, or, or large group? I mean, what are your thoughts with that? Like, do you have a, a perception of like, you know, the types of questions it should be or the types of entry points or. Yeah. So, so, me, so I'll start at the 10,000 foot view. So I think the way that I've, I've tried to describe it to my students or, or for a way for them to think about it is that the purpose of small groups is generative, which is to say that when you put kids in small groups, what you want them to do is generate ideas, right. About something, right. So, so that means that if you're sending them into small groups, the task that you should be giving them should have some openness to it because the goal is to have them generate ideas. And the reason for small groups to be focused on generativity is because you want different things from different groups. And if you're talking in a whole class, you lose some of that, right? Because kids will hear what the other kids say and then just say, oh, well, that's... So the small groups allow the individual sort of groups of three or four students at different tables to generate different ideas. And that's good, right? This goes to this idea of like um, expansion that you want classrooms to science classrooms to have lots of different ideas because it's an ecosystem. And the more ideas that you have, the better off the whole class is because there's ideas to push against and think and compare and contrast and compare to evidence and do all the things that you want to do in a, in a science classroom. So I think that's the thing I try to focus my students on initially is that small groups um, is generative time. Right. Um, So, so I guess let me stop there and see what you think. And and then I can add some layers into that, but, uh, but that's, and then we'll talk about the large group and its purpose. Yeah. And I, I think the, as I'm thinking about like, you know, when I would do that, I, I think that's, that, that, you know, really relates to how I would do it in my classroom. I think that, um, 
it's really good at like getting lots of ideas and and having sort of these separate conversations because I think there'd be some students who would feel more comfortable talking in a small group, you know, and and talking and coming up with ideas. But I think that, you know, maybe like there's also the benefit of like whole group brainstorming, right? Like if you have like this, you know, like you're creating like a a splash wall, like, okay, just throw out a whole bunch of stuff and putting it on, on, on the board. I think that becomes sort of, you know, a a way of doing that too but i think that there is that you know safety in that small small group where you know you know any group any person can contribute in there and i think that's it's a really good way of thinking of so being generative having a generative sort of discussion where you're trying to get lots of ideas at uh out in the open that's the place to have the small group okay I, i can buy into that yeah yeah well and i think i think what you're saying too though is important and i didn't talk about this but but um but you did so uh yeah. which is uh that the other thing that small groups do is they expand the participation right so when you're yeah. in whole group it, no matter how much you try and organize it you're always going to have some kids that talk more than others right and those kids um the the thing that you have to remind yourself is that the learning happens when kids are talking about their own ideas. And so the more opportunities you provide them to talk about their their own ideas with other people, the more learning that those kids are going to do. So if you're in a whole group, even if you're doing a great job of mixing, you know, calling on different people and bringing people into the conversation, it's always going to be more limited, the number of kids who are getting to work through their ideas, because you just have more kids. So your point about like, one of the big advantages of small group is that it lets more kids talk about their own ideas. And, and I think that is important, right? And, and that's part of the generativity too, is because you're going to get more, you know, if you've got a class of 24 kids um, you're, you, and you do a whole class conversation, you're only going to generate a certain number of ideas. But if you break that into six groups of four, now you're in a very different scenario where you might get very different conversations from those six tables Um and then that all comes into the group later, which is fantastic. So, but that yeah. idea that like mul- having multiple kids being able to talk through their ideas is, uh, is another key reason to put kids in small groups. So we could talk about group sizes at some point in this, yeah. like, cause you threw out four. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, some of that is dependent upon the types of conversation too. Um, I always kind of, I, I kind of always lean to three, if I could pull that off threes or fours. Mm -hmm. Um, but I found when we moved to, uh, to zoom that totally just disrupted everything. I found like, you know, three just wasn't enough that you needed like four or five in a zoom group to be able to, because that, that just, you know, the comfort of, of talking, if there was just two, you know, there's some groups that just didn't, they just didn't feel comfortable talking in groups of two, which is kind of weird, you know, but that definitely, um, impacted how people, uh, collaborated and communicated when they were put in small groups. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a, a group size conversation too, to, to, to this and maybe we'll get to that today great if, if not we can probably put a pin in and hold it off on to another episode yeah yeah that's interesting like the idea of if they're in pairs it um it almost can force discomfort right that yeah. one one of the kids feels like oh i really got to say something because we're just sitting here staring at each other so when the when they're and that can cut both ways um because you know it it does allow that that discomfort can be useful because it forces kids to talk, but it can also be uh, unuseful, especially in contexts like Zoom context, where it's easier to 
to avoid that um, discomfort, right? Like that's one of the things we saw with, you know, we joke about it all the time, but wait time on Zoom. Yeah. Um, so this idea that like being silent in a classroom makes people feel uncomfortable, which eventually gets them to sort of participate. That's the notion of wait time is that it, it allows time for, and it also allows time for people to think so they can contribute ideas so they don't have to do it right off the dome. Um, so that discomfort but, but is useful. But in Zoom, that was just like, but it doesn't work. Was out, was out the window. It just didn't exist. Right. Yeah. You know, or, or if somebody did the, you know, did a, did a study around it, it's much longer than eight seconds, you know, yeah. which is like five to eight seconds is what they typically say. And then you, you'll, if you get in, uh, if you wait for five to eight seconds after asking a question, you'll get, or if you're like at the end and you say, what questions do you have? And you don't say any hands, wait for, you know, five to eight seconds and, almost guarantee there'll be somebody raising their hand and, and saying, well, I have this question I was yeah. meaning to ask. And it almost give them that permission to, you know, I find, you know, although three isn't a good number for an amusement park, uh, three is a pretty good number to have in, <laughs> you know, when you go to an amusement park, you don't want to have three people because someone's always yeah. like trying to find a rider. Yeah. I find what happens with fours, at least with, you know, the classes I've seen is that there are times where like you get, you know pairs it's like actually two separate conversations that are going on because mm -hmm. you know this pair goes off and this pair goes off and they're kind of like almost having parallel conversations it can happen that way and sure. and that's something we, we don't want to happen right because mm -hmm. if we would have wanted that we would just put them in pairs um right. yeah so i like you know i think three is like where is my happy place you know well, that's nice yeah uh, right. although yeah. like if it's a you know i mean uh, uh, all of this is, you know, it varies depending on like the circumstance, sure. like based on the equipment you have in your classrooms, based on the, you know, the actual room you have, you may not have a room that, you know, you, you might have to configure in some sort of way sure. to be able to do something, you know, discussion based, but, you know, I guess, you know, uh, results may vary, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and three is a tricky number in that most classrooms, um, well, most of the science classrooms I see these days have some sort of table configuration, right? They don't have individual desks. They have tables where two kids sit. And so then three, you're, you have to figure out how to break, break kids up around table sets. Um, but, you know, those are logistical issues that you can certainly right. deal with. It's not like that's impossible. But, um, but I think it gets, you know, your point, it gets at this nuance of how do you figure out what the right pedagogical decision is how do you decide is this a time for two is this a time for three is this a time for four is this a time for whole group like how do we yeah. you know how do we make those decisions and i think you know they are they are difficult and and you have to keep trying to think about what are the big goals that you're trying to accomplish both in terms of content and in terms of the norms of the classroom like what what you're trying to establish a sense of trust and a sense of um you know all the other sort of characteristics of a science classroom, you know, that this is an evidence-based place and that this is, a, you know, we're open to new ideas, but we also critique all ideas because that's how science works and all these things that you want to instill that are beyond the, the um, just, you know, individual groupings of kids. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, assigning roles and things like that. I don't think we need to, to deal with that no. issue today. Yeah. But it, there are other ways to deal with these different groupings and and using groupings 
in a way, I think that what we're talking about here is to try and maximize the learning, right? I mean, that's what you're really trying to do, whether you're putting kids, you know, where you're doing a think pair share, right? Or whether you're putting them in groups of three or four or whatever, like what you're always trying to do is, is use those social organizations to, to help kids learn the science, because that's what you're there for. I think the other thing, you know, so we've kind of had this one, you know, we started out with, okay, small groups is really good for generating ideas. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the, the, the sizes that we would consider. But I think another thing we, we might use small groups for is we've talked about this, like, you know, how, you know, science teaching is a lot of, a lot about explanations, right? Mm -hmm. And so using small groups to have students like try out those explanations, you know, okay, how like, and this would be, you know, kind of like at the end of that cycle, where they're trying out the explanations in in small groups, before they, you know, break out, because I think that's one of those places where they're going to need, you know, have some have some practice to do this, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I think having it done in a smaller group setting, um, of course, that's where your role as a teacher has to move around to make sure those explanations are, you know, based on evidence and, you know, that they're, um, you know, drawing on uh, and explaining the phenomena that you're, you're, you've created in your classroom. But I think that creates that, again, that I don't want to say safety, but there's, there's something to that where, you know, the students can, um, they feel like they have a voice in that smaller group, whereas, you know, in a larger group, they can get lost or they can be intimidated, you know, and yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. I think um, that that idea of like getting to test your ideas out with a smaller audience, um, and and maybe that goes back too to the just the whole generative notion, right? Like part of the reason small groups are generative is because everybody can talk, but also because the the audience is smaller, and so the risk it it minimizes or reduces the risk of embarrassment right you 're not going to yeah. be embarrassed in front of the teacher most of the time, and you 're not going to be embarrassed in front of your peers except for a small group of them and so um, and assuming that you can help students develop trust in those small groups, that can be really powerful and let them let them work through those explanations um, you know I think that 's that idea of like, so what, where are the sort of canonical places in the, in the curriculum where you're likely to put kids in small groups? Well, certainly one of them is at the beginning of a unit when you're doing an initial explanation of a phenomenon, right? So you give them a phenomenon and you want them to sort of just generate their best ideas about how that works. Well, that's a perfect time for them to be in small groups. And that's, you know, it always is when people, you know, in the, in the ambitious science teaching universe, that's when kids are always in small groups is when, is when that they're doing that initial explanation. Um, so those places where you're, you're sort of on some level simulating, um, you know, the scientific community by, by the small groups acting sort of like research groups. And then, and then now we can talk a little bit about what the whole group is about, but the, but the small groups are meant to be, you know, like, oh, there's a group doing, you know, gravity wave research here at Penn State, but there's also one at Princeton or Yale or Oxford or, you know, University of Tokyo. And so those small groups operate on their own to generate ideas and thinking, and then that then they have to share out, right? They have to share that in different ways to other parts of the community to, to push those ideas and and develop clarity. And, and so that's now the transition to whole group, which is when we think about whole group is really about building consensus about what the best ideas in the class are. 
can we, can we just jump in before before we like jump into yeah, yeah. Uh, whole group uh, whole groups? I, I've, I've been thinking about times and in things we're doing with small, small groups. And one of the things you and I are planning um, to do is, you know, some jigsawing with, you know, some folks. And I think jigsawing right. is another, you know, while it has this sort of trite, you know, mechanistic thing, sure. I think it can be a powerful small group technique. And I think that while we have this, you know, generative idea and we also have this, explanatory space for small groups. I think the other part is to, you know, I think it's kind of ties into that is that, you mm, know, jigsaws is, it's kind of like that using it pedagogically to do both of those, right. Mm-hmm. Is that what you you're doing with a jigsaw group? If you're not, if, if, if you're out there listening and you haven't done this before, this is a really great way of getting lots of conversations around lots of different ideas is you have expert groups. So you might like use, I don't know, break your class up. If you have 24 students in your class, you have, you know, maybe assigning six different articles to groups of people in the class. So there are these six different expert groups where you bring them together and they all talk about that, that article. So they get a sense of what that article is about. And then you create a mixed group with like a person, an expert from each of those articles sharing their ideas in the small group, which is kind of exactly like that middle ground between the generative and the explanatory, right? So it uses that pedagogically to one, have this, you know, generative space where the expert group is all coming together, but then it's also, you know, bringing in all that explanatory stuff too, which is kind of cool, you know? Yeah. And it made me think actually, it'd be really interesting to, to try a version of that with, without the necessarily the article piece, but with the idea that like, okay, the, the individual groups are working on their explanation. Well, now let's reorganize the groups yeah. and let them sit back down and, and see what happens, right? Because it because I've been talking with my little group of three or four people, and now I'm going to go to another group and I'll have a new group of people and I'll have to explain my ideas to them or my group's ideas to them and vice versa. And so even without the article, which I think is your, your, you know, your example is, is the classic jigsaw thing, sure. but, but just how would you do that in a different way that would, would take advantage of the fact that these groups are, are developing their expertise in a different way. Well, I saw that happen in an observation I did in the fall. So I saw that exact oh, lesson I was, you. I was doing. And I, I think it was the, one of our intern teachers was working in a, in a science classroom. And I think it was a, a, a lesson that their mentor had modeled right for them I see. because uh, what had happened was they, uh, I don't even remember what the lesson was about, like the actual content, but I just remember I was struck by that. I was like, that is a really cool grouping strategy. So what they did was they did some sort of, you know, demonstration or, or, or thing where that, you know, the students were going to develop an explanation around like why that happened. Mm-hmm. And so started with two, you know, a group of two, and then that group of two formed a new group of four with another group that had created, uh, you know, generated ideas. Mm-hmm. And then that group of four was split and they went off to other and, and they were trying to test out their explanation with other groups. Mm. It was so cool to see. And I just remember going, wow, that is really neat to watch. And I'd never seen something like that before. And, you know, it was kind of cool to, I mean, that's one of the cool things about being, you know, you're supervising student teachers and, you know, mm-hmm. watching interns and mentors teach is you constantly are getting, you know, new ways of seeing, you know, teaching happen. Yeah. Well, and that, and that, Maybe that tells us another bit about this pattern, which is like the pattern is you want to be moving back and forth between, you know, thinking through your own ideas and then comparing your ideas to other people's ideas, because that's where you get 
where your ideas get improved is when they're yeah. coming up against other people. So there, so you want to have time where time and opportunities in the classroom where students can generate their own ideas and think through them where they're sort of agreeing. And then you want them, want to push them out to a place where they're forced to put their ideas up against other people's ideas and see how they compare. And so that, you know, that's natural in science communities, but it's also something we want in our classroom. So that's a perfect example of how to think about, because there were multiple layers to that. There were the pairs and then the fours and then the fours get broken up. And so at each of those time points, what's happening is there's some local coming to consensus Oh, you're, yeah, I agree with that part of your idea. I'm going to incorporate it into mine. And now we've all got this shared understanding. And now you're going to s- jump out to another group of people who haven't heard that conversation. And now you're going to have to say, oh, yeah, your idea is really interesting. And now I got to figure out how to c- incorporate that or not into my thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a little like, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with that Eric Mazur stuff from, mm. you know, from Harvard. He's yep. a physics professor there where he, you know, does all of this. It's, it's a lot of assessment based where they do the whole group assessment. This is a, you know, collegiate physics courses where, you know, he'll use clickers or whatever. And then he'll ask the students to go off. Okay. I see the answers that everyone selected as A and B, even though only one of those answers is correct, go off and find it. And if you're a B, find an A, argue it out. And so he really trusts that the, you know, those, those ideas will, and those explanations will win out, you know, if, if that happens. And so he has a lot of research to show that that's a better way than just say, here's the right answer. Right. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it comes back to that, the explanatory power, right. Of, of Mm -hmm. small groups. Yeah. Yeah. And also this, you know, uh, the, the, um, you know, the other thing that we've talked about before is this idea of epistemic agency. So whose job is it to decide that these ideas are good or not? And if it's always the teacher, then that gives kids a weird notion about the way science works. Whereas, you know, whether that's Eric Mazur's or what we've been describing, like all of these, what, what determines the good ideas is the people having a conversation and deciding internally, the students basically, oh yeah, I like your idea. It explains this better than mine does. So let's take, or let's take part of yours and part of mine. And then we've got an even better explanation. But the point is like, it's not the teacher saying that's the right answer and you're the wrong answer. It's the students sort of working through it themselves. And that that practice doesn't just do them good in terms of their learning. It does do that, but it also does them good in the sense that it helps them understand the way that science actually works. That science isn't this answer book in the sky, that what it really is, is it's people having conversations about things and the best explanations, the one that have the strongest evidence and explain the evidence best are the ones that get moved forward because people are like, Oh yeah, that's really good. It's helpful and useful. Yeah. All right. So let's move to, to whole group. So, yeah, I mean, I think we sort of talked about it, but I think that for me, the purpose of whole group is that is is the consensus. So what that means is there's a couple of parts to that. The first is, you know, use, using the, the progressive discourse language, which I typically do, right, is, is mutual understanding, which is we want each of the groups to understand each other's ideas first. So let me make sure I really understand Ali's idea before we get into like, oh, is your idea better than my idea or whatever, right? So there, so the first part of it is, does everybody understand these ideas? And then 
the 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 next piece is okay so we as a classroom community have to sort of adopt we have to decide which is the best and and which one we're going to keep or hold on to or test or whatever it is that we're trying to do with that consensus part so you're doing something to try and talk across all of these ideas that have been generated in the small groups to try and decide which are the ones that are most valuable or useful. And there there may not be just one consensus doesn't mean you come to one answer and everyone's like, oh yeah, all these ideas are the best. So we're going to write it on the board and now we're done. It may be that there's a couple ideas that we're not sure about. And then part of what happens next is you go back into small groups to see if you can figure out ways to test the difference between these ideas but that idea that the the goal of the large group is to do some sort of consensus building and sharing across that allows you to sort of jump to the next thing. So to decide basically, okay, we've worked in our little groups. Now we're going to talk together as a whole group about what we're going to do next. Like what, what's the consensus decision about what our, what our next thing should be. Yeah. I, 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 I'm my, my brain is kind of floating to, um, something not around teaching and I'm trying okay, to keep please. myself. From the, well, no, no. so I, I, uh, I was listening to a podcast recently. Um, and, uh, it's 99% invisible. And mm. what they were talking about was, is actually one of those times where they are like featuring and featuring another podcast. Right. Mm, right and so right. they were featuring a podcast called rumble strip, um, which is a podcast. that's all things Vermont, like everything oh. from Vermont. Yeah, right. so it's, it's it's dedicated to Vermont and Vermont things. But one of the things they talked about was, um, I guess, the, in small towns in Vermont, there's this, you know, a governmental process called the town hall. Mm. And so every sure. day in like, well, one day in like May, I think it is, that, you know, schools are shut down, businesses are shut down, everything's shut down in these small little communities. And the community comes together as one big group to talk about and make decisions for the group. And so what they do is they are building consensus. Mm. And, and so when the, when the pandemic hit, they were talking about possibly stopping this process. You know, they, they were moving to a lot of electronic ballots and things at the time, but then they were like, after the pandemic has been, you know, kind of, you know, clearing up a bit, they were like, okay, should we just, you know, be done with this process? And and so they had a town hall to discuss this in one community. And the one guy's like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't know how I'm going to vote. And the person's like, well, if you're coming to town hall to help you decide, haven't you kind of already figured it out? You know, because like, you, if you want to like hear how other people view things and how other people make sense of things based on the way other people are explaining things, then that's, it's a critical space to have that in. Right. And Mm -hmm. so while it's not a direct connection, I think it does show the power of consensus building and, 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 and conversation. Yeah. I mean, there's a power to that. And I think that having, um, creating that space in your classroom where, you know, we don't position ourselves as teachers, as the expert, or as, you know, we're, we are experts, you know, and I don't mean to say we're not, um, but what I think is important is we're, we're demonstrating our expertise in different ways by facilitating really good conversations and, and selecting and orchestrating this whole conversation, um, to, to help that consensus meaning making sense making thing happen that's a powerful thing and to be able to do that in in a really um you know productive way i think that's where we demonstrate our expertise right yeah for sure and i I think that that go ahead i'm sorry no 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 go ahead uh i was gonna say i mean i think the the thing that that reminds me of then is 
keeping it up at the 10,000 foot view is, you know, again, going back to this idea of civil discourse and how do we get to a place where we can listen to other people's ideas and talk through them and, and recognize that our, that our job as citizens is to come to as best we can consensus about things so that we can make decisions about how we as a community want to move forward. I mean, that, that is, you know, if they can learn to do that in science classes, that's got to help with the bigger problem of having people have these civil conversations about other things that are not necessarily even science-based. One would hope, one would hope. Right. Right. But, but if you get used to, you know, being in a classroom where, what's happening is you're constantly having your own ideas and then hearing other people's ideas and then talking through those ideas together in small and large and different configurations of groupings. Like it feels like that, that has to help with this larger problem of people's like, like not really talking to each other and certainly not really listening to each other. And, um, and how do you, you know, that's a fundamental piece and that science as, as a, a community and as a classroom community can really do some good work because it's, it is the, the most obvious place. I'm not going to say other places don't have this exactly, but it's the most obvious place to have evidence-based conversations um, because English and social studies have a little have, you know, the evidence in those realms, especially in English is a little uh wigglier and more difficult to get your hands on. And mathematics tends to feel very rule-based and clear. And I think the advantage to science in all this conversation as a possibility for where to have these, you know, civil conversations is that it's an evidence-based space, right? But it's not full of clear, unambiguous, rule-based answers, even though we teach it that way. Um, So I think that's, that for me, that that's a very hopeful place. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I do want to say, like, bring in or, or remind folks that we're talking about science here. We're talking about science education, but I think we're also talking about beyond science education about like how we create, you know, uh, civil discourse in our, and in, in not only in our classrooms, but beyond and how we, you know, um, train, maybe train people to make evidence-based decisions where we, you know, what is counted as evidence is something that's just not opinion, you know, disguised Mm -hmm. as evidence. Right. Right. Um, But also like, you know, discussions may look different in different content areas. Um, I know. So one of my uh, long, long time friends is a English teacher and he had posted about something about discussions just recently. And in his class, he goes, you know, I, I don't, I don't create discussions. I find them. And I was like, that's a very different perspective than, than we would have in, in science. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, cause I think he like, he, dis- he says, I discover them. And mm-hmm. like, it kind of the best discussions he's had in his classrooms are ones that, you know, just, he kind of, you know, but I think that comes back to that, you know, discipline improvisation that you talked about. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that it's, it's something different in science, you know, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Now that you're saying it, I'm wondering, like, because I think one of the things that we emphasize is that good science teaching begins with students' ideas, that that they are the ones that should be driving the conversation. And I think in that sense, it is a sense of of discovery. Um, Now, I do think uh, at the same time, I agree with you that it also is probably different because I think um, there are... uh, I got to be careful here, I guess. I was going to say there are understandings that we want them to have, but, but I think, um, 
it's this is the tension i think that we have to grapple with that this is probably this is not probably this is its own episode onto itself which is like what is the relationship between the models and the ideas that kids generate and the normative scientific models right like is the goal of the science classroom to get quote unquote get kids to have that scientific model or is it something different um where that's not the outcome but the outcome is kids generating their own ideas and their own models that get increasingly better. Um, but better doesn't necessarily mean identical to this, the canonical science knowledge, but that's a, that's a tricky one that I think science, science education is struggling with now, right? Which is, you know, there's a lot of talk about different ways of knowing in science and, and thinking about epistemic agency and all this, you know, pushing the, the, power and the the meaning making into children's hands but there still remains this tension that people say well yeah but they still got to know what energy is and they still got to know like yeah. how plants work or whatever you know and uh so there is a tension there that i think is is tricky yeah and for those of you who are playing bingo back at at, at home he uh, scott definitely used canonical today he yeah. definitely used normative today i did yes <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> epistemic as used uh, at least yeah. once today. <laughs> yeah. An epistemic agency, no less. Yeah, yeah. I know. I look at you. I did uh, I didn't use epistemological or ontological, but but you there know. you have it, right? Well, there. <laughs> it doesn't really count when you do it that way. You can't mark it on your bingo card yeah. if it's just you know, saying the words. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nice. So what so is that the only place to have um large group discussions? I mean we, I guess in in the sort of discussion, you know, phenomenon based science, yes, but maybe, you know, I think. Yeah. I think, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about like other places that I've done large group discussions. I mean, sometimes brainstorming where I want to try to get large uh, lots of ideas out um, mm-hmm. about something. Um, I use that as a maybe sometimes a a, a strategy sometimes in the like when I. Um, you know, trying to get some prior knowledge out, like just to see where people are. I'll do like mm-hmm. sort of like, um, you know, hey, tell me everything you know about X. And then sometimes that sort of like that large group discussion is a great way for it almost creates the opposite of safety because it's like that sort of like, you know, I don't want to say ignorance, but, you know, that's sort of like, you know, hey, here's what I know. And it's just like you're just people are throwing up stuff because they are recognizing maybe they're kind of feeding off each other a, a little bit. Um but I'm trying to think of other opportunities where you, you, you want to do a large, a whole large group discussion. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you got to a lot of them. I'm trying to think if there's other ones that I, I mean, when you're defining the next task, you know, like where, what you're doing next, that obviously you want everybody on the same page before you go back into small groups. So everybody understands what they're up to. Um, that may not be a discussion though. So, but it's definitely a whole group thing. Um, I mean, I think the other thing we could, talk a little bit about is how do you know when to transition between these two? Because it's easy to say like, oh, okay, that's for generative or that's for letting kids talk through their ideas or develop practice their explanations. But how do I know when to switch? And the same with consensus building, like at what point do we go back to small groups? And I think this yeah. is one of the things that, um, you know, the the advice that I have and that I've given my students when they've asked this question is that, um, you sort of have a sense that things are petering out, right? Yeah. So in small groups, that often looks like kids are off task, 
right? They're talking about something else. They're talking about something else. They're talking about the Jack White show they went to. Yeah, right. But I mean, I think a lot of it is about reading the room, right? And paying attention to what's going on. And so that's where I think your expertise as a teacher has to come in. And that's probably the hardest thing for new teachers is to have, because they don't have that expertise or, well, uh, and this, the other part about knowing your kids, knowing your students, the students you're working with mm-hmm. and recognizing whenever the, you know, the conversations are either lolling or changing, mm-hmm. right. That they're now, now they're no longer talking about the topic you've, you know, that w- you've assigned or the topic that's come up or whatever. Right. <laughs> now it's moving into what they're going to do over the weekend or what's on what they're streaming on television or whatever. It's now right. something different. And and when that happens, that's a really, or there's this, you know, quiet, you know, that's happening yes, because exactly. they've just run out of ideas or that the question or task is so challenging that they're n- not able to accomplish it in the small groups. Right. Or they, re- go ahead. Yeah, well, or, or, you know, that quiet in large group often means that they don't know where to go next. So they're sort of yeah. like, okay. And that often is an indication that, okay, it's time for me to ask them to do some generative work in small groups. Like we've gotten to the point where they need to talk through some ideas in a smaller context, which is not going to be, you know, not going to be public and not going to be potentially embarrassing um, or whatever. So get in those small groups, get back to this thing, and then let's come back together as a large group and figure that out. So I agree completely that there's this sense of reading the room, deciding like, okay, has this, this thing that we've done, has it sort of played out and the kids are now, um, you know, past the point where they they need no longer to do be in this particular organizational context we need to switch it up and that that's that happens you know it happens in both directions it happens both from small group to large group and from large group to small group but that but looking out for those signs is key i think it's the i'm gonna i'm gonna throw this out it's Uh i think in the transition that happens with unproductive quiet or unproductive loud Oh, look at that. All right. All right. I'll just yeah. throw that out. Cause yeah. like when you're, when you're in a small group, you're going to have some of that unproductive loud stuff happening too. Right. Where it's like sure. students are like, you know, talking about their weekend or whatever. That's a, that's a transition point. The other part is that they have this unproductive quiet where they're sitting there, you know, just struggling. They're just, you know, and mm-hmm. then, but the opposite, if you're doing a, you know, large group and you're just like, okay, come on, you know, and, and you're in this like silence from the room that, is a place that maybe it's time for you to go, okay, let's break up into small groups and let's tackle this then. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to lead a whole group discussion, you're seeing that there's a group over there that's like having their own conversation that may or may not be related. That might be the opportunity for you to say, okay, what I'm doing right now as a teacher is not being effective, is not getting those voices in mm-hmm. or not getting their, and that might be the other thing to create a transition point. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree. That's a nice way to think about it. And I think the the tricky bit is the unproductive part of it, right? Because because there the other thing that I see happen sometimes is, especially the beginning teachers, they're very nervous when kids are in small group because they say, "Oh, they're off task," and it's like, well, some of the time, and that's normal, right? So the question is, at what point do they switch from being a little bit occasionally off task to basically like they either they can't figure out what they're supposed to be doing or they're done with what they're doing. And so now they're just completely off task. So the conversation has shifted all the way into, um, you know, they're talking about whatever, right? Um, I saw I saw one of the teachers um, in, you know, talk, going talking about observations again. I was in a classroom, and and the teacher, a one group of 
boys had sort of seemed to spiral off into this other place. They were talking about Doctor Who in this case, right? And so he came over and he's like, okay, so it seems like you guys are sort of on a mental break here. So I'm just checking in with you. He said, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't mind you doing that but I want to check in with you to see like, why is that happening? Like, is it happening because you, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing or are you just sort of, you know, done or what, what's happening? Can we talk through it? And, and that, I thought that was a nice way to not come over and say like, stop talking about Dr. Who, because that's not what this class is about, but to say, but to see it as I'm recognizing that something that you all as a group have made a transition to this point where you're not being productive anymore in a big way. So how can I help get you either back on track or is this an indicator that we've got to switch to a different task, either for you or for the whole class? Yeah. And it comes back to reading the room, reading the room and, and also being willing to let like, I, and sometimes those, the, uh, and I, I try to use unproductive. I was trying to think of a a way to word that because like, and I, I, Unproductive meaning that it doesn't lead to where, you know, to the overall goals of the activity or overall mm-hmm. goals of, of the lesson. However, I think some of that is necessary. Like with those, you right. know, some, when, if they're, if they've, you know, finished the task and they're now talking and we're waiting for, and I think that's okay. I mean, I've, yeah. but we know new teachers sometimes are uncomfortable with that. They're, it's like, okay, I gotta, you know, assert, assert my control in the classroom. It's right. like, you, you can do it lots of ways, you know, to, uh, you know, to uh, make yourself seem like, or appear as the expert in the classroom and, and the adult in the classroom without necessarily asserting your control. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah. That's the thing that I know a lot of new teachers struggle with, you know, that's the, and they get advice like that. Hey, you're not supposed to smile until December yeah, or yeah, like, right. and they're not supposed to know anything about you and the, all the, all those myths, which, you know, really run, you know, really counter to all of the things we talk about, about knowing your kids, you know, creating social environments, your classroom where, you know, students feel safe and feel like they have the ability to talk about, you know, their ideas, all of that stuff runs counter to that. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And, and the idea that, you know, like you're saying, when you, when you come into a small group, like if they're talking about Dr. Who and you know something about Dr. Who, maybe you want to engage with them for a minute or two about that to say like, Hey, I hear what you're saying. I can connect with that. But also there's, there was a task here and, you know, and going back to another thing you, you were talking about with the jigsaw, maybe that another thing you could do with that group is if they feel like they're, they're complete with the task and they understand what they're doing, you say, okay, I want one of you to go to each of the other groups, yeah. like blow up and each of you go to one of the other groups and just listen and see if you have questions for them or have some suggestions for them and their ideas, right? So this idea of continually looking for opportunities to get kids to engage around ideas with other kids in the class rather than with you telling them what the right answer is. Yeah. Read the room, read Read the the room. room. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, what, what, while I agree with read the room, I think one of the things that you're doing and I'm doing here is trying to help pre-service teachers or people who don't do this a lot to understand what that means, right? Because yes. it's easy to say read the room, but what you're, but but I think we've given them a lot more details about what that means and what to look for sure. and how to deal with it when you do read the room. But I agree, you know, reading the room is 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 a colloquial way of saying disciplined improvisation, right? Like you you want to be responsive to the class that you have in front of you, but you want to do it in a way that is going somewhere, not just like 
whatever they want to talk about. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause I, as I was saying that, and you, you challenged me on, you know, uh, reading the room as just like giving that as advice. I think about my dad trying to teach me to drive a stick shift <laughs> and, it, right. it, and it was it, for, for the younger folks out there, there are, you know, automatic vehicles and they're standard vehicles, standard vehicles, which aren't, you know, really a whole lot of them anymore. They used to have like a stick shift where you would, you know, you had to put, push the clutch to move it from, you know, one gear to and the to other manually and change gears, manually change gears. And so when you wanted the engine to switch to a different, um, th- different gear, you had to do that. Um, automatic transitions do that on automatically. And so, uh, my dad was trying to teach me to do this and he just goes, you, you'll feel it. You'll feel when you need right. to do this. And I'm like, what am I supposed to feel like, like some sort of like sense of like, you know, Right. I don't know, an, an epiphany or something is happening. Oh, I need to change that. And then so I, uh, I, a neighbor kid who was just maybe a year or two older than me, he said, here, I can show you how to drive a stick in like an afternoon. And so he took me out. He goes, and he said, this is what he says. You want to listen and feel. And these are the things specifically you're right. listening and feeling for. And he goes, okay. And he, I was just in the passenger. So he goes, okay, listen when this happens. And he was giving me specific markers. And then I knew because I was mm-hmm. paying attention to what was happening with the transmission and what I needed to do to make the change. The yeah. same thing here is reading the room means listening and paying attention to the things that are happening in the classroom, looking for those moments of silence and those moments of loudness that are not being productive and then transitioning between those um, to try to, and, and sometimes it means not just moving from small group to large group. It might mean from small groups to other small groups, right. you know, like you're saying. And I think that's the whole thing about reading the room is paying attention and, and, and really listening and, you know, seeing what's happening in the classroom to be able to, you know, really do the next best thing, you know, yep. whatever that is. And now we, well, now we'll have electric cars and no more gears at all. So right. That'll we won't be need lost. any kind of transmission. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Stand, standard. That whole conversation would be lost right. on people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even, you even like stepping on the gas won't make any sense anymore. Yeah. It'll be like, no, no, you're just, you're press the speed up pedal instead of the slowdown pedal. You know, it's yeah. like, what? Yeah. There. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You sounded like a very old man right there. Like, yeah. Thank rah, you. Rah. I was trying, but it's true. <laughs> have you, have you hey. driven in a fully electric car? Like, a? no, I haven't. I have okay. not. So it is a very weird experience. We have friends who have a Tesla and I, I, they, I was with them the other day and they're like, Hey, why don't you just try and drive? I was like, eh. but it's very weird. I mean, a, you press the accelerator and the thing just <laughs> takes off and there, but there's no gear shifting because that's not the way the engine went works. So, um, you know, you don't have gears, you just have acceleration. And then when you take your foot off the gas, you don't have to put your foot on the brake because the car automatically is slowing down because it's using the same engine to speed up and slow down because it gets that energy back. So it's, it's, I mean, the brake, there is a brake in the car, but the accelerator, when you take your foot off, it it works like a brake. So you, you almost have to learn, relearn how to drive. It's very weird. So, you know, but nobody will ever know what a standard is anymore because now you just like, you don't even hear that all, because you could still hear all the stuff that you're talking about. You can hear the car's engine going up and then going back down again when the gears shift and, but all that's gone. None of that. It's all just magic now. No one will know how to drive a a standard vehicle again. And nobody will know how to repair a car. And it's, you know, it's just for moving into the universe where like humans don't know anything about the machines we use. 
which is crazy. But that's a it whole nother thing. It is crazy. But but we're now now here for Joyce. Now we're here for Joyce. And I believe it is your turn to go first this week with Joyce. So I I I will say I recently spent some time in, in Pittsburgh, which is my my hometown. And um even though like I, I will say this, I, I if you're living in the Northeast, um uh, you you know that Permani Brothers has become sort of a chain. Oh. And, and then there's one locally here, you know, within like a couple of miles from my house. But when I was back in Pittsburgh, I went to one of the, you know, original Primanti brothers. And this is for, if you're not familiar with Primanti brothers, it's a, it's a Pittsburgh institution. Um, it's a place where you can get a sandwich with like really thick cut Italian bread. And then you can get, you know, your choice of meat or egg and cheese. And, and then they, the, the thing that makes it unique is coleslaw and fries on i don't know what pittsburgh's fascination with the french fry is but they have a fascination with the french fry in that they put it on your salads they'll put it on you know on your sandwiches it's just a thing and i know some people just they they can't wrap their head around that so they have a visceral reaction to permani brothers (laughs) but my family even though we've gone to these you know chain locations that are in you know various locations now um we wanted to go back to one of the you know the original places because that's yeah which is one of the places when i went to college at at the university of pittsburgh that would be a place that you know i'd go you know semi-regularly as as a poor college student you know i didn't i wasn't always able to afford it uh but it was great. And it, the menu is kind of different than it is at some of the, you know, the uh, franchise locations. So, you know, you can't get tater tots and stuff like that at the, <laughs> at the OG location, but it was great. It was, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, to me, there are things that just, you know, speak Pittsburgh and, and that's one of them. And it was great to get back there and to be able to see, you know, how the city's changed and, and yet this, you know, this institution has stayed the same. So pretty cool for many brothers. Yeah, I have never been to that location. I have been to Primani Brothers. Primani Brothers is Primani I, Brothers. Primani Brothers. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure you you pronounce it correctly, and I do not. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I've never been. I have to get to the one of the original locations. And isn't there like a? Am I mixing this up with with Philadelphia? But there's like a stance for eating this sandwich where you're like, maybe I'm mixing this up. Yeah, I, I remember. Know. I, I thought there was a thing and I thought it was for Manny brothers, but maybe it wasn't where like you, not only is it the sandwich, a signature thing, but then you, you're sort of, because originally the reason supposedly that they put the fries on the sandwich is because the working guys would come down and they didn't want it. They wanted it all just in one place, like just put it all together so I can just eat the thing. Now, I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that history. Um, but then there was this idea that like you, you ate standing up outside and there was this sort of stance where you're leaning sort of forward so the food would fall onto the ground instead of you know onto you while you're eating i don't know maybe i'm making all this up i've never heard that so that is like (sighs) you're either more knowledgeable than me about this or um i'm I'm gonna guess less (laughs) i'm guess i'm making that nonsense up but i feel like i heard that story but maybe it was a philly thing with cheesesteaks um but you know every pittsburgh and philly have their you know signature sandwich arguments that well i would i would say like Almost every city in America has a signature sandwich. 
you know mm, that's an interesting yeah. question yeah. is that true or it's certainly a signature food of some kind well think but think about it like you know uh what is it kansas city has the hot chicken sandwich no is that, that well it's memphis or nashville or yeah no yeah. i don't think kansas city has a hot chicken yeah i don't know well that, that's yeah yeah now we're getting down a road i don't know i'll, I'll have to I'll, i'm gonna have to google that yeah. sandwiches of america because like Cincinnati has like their what is their thing? They have like a hot dog thing. Oh my gosh. Cincinnati yeah. has a famous like food. Well, in Chicago. Anyway. Oh, Chicago. Yeah. Chicago. If you go to the you see a baseball game, you want to get, you know, what's the, the Italian sandwich they have? They have like a what's it called? Uh Italian beef. I think it's an Italian oh. beef sandwich. Yeah. Because there's also a Chicago hot dog and there's yeah. also Chicago popcorn mix there's also deep dish, deep dish. Like uno's pizza like yeah sort of deep dish chicago style pizza so i don't know man that's that's a whole different podcast we don't have time for that no but talk, it's a delicious podcast it, it would, it like would be delicious egg. we we could travel around I'm here, and for, eat, I'm here for it eat food in different <laughs> cities and just talk about it <laughs> yeah. yeah i think wait, there's probably a food channel thing about that yeah well yeah. i mean we, you and i actually were together last week and shared a meal together which was that's great. true it was yeah. great yeah. yeah, I could use that as my joy, but I well, but I don't want to reveal like. Don't any, say it. Yeah, that, I'm not going to say anything about the place where we ate because that'll ruin. Yeah, because it, yeah. it's it's busy enough as it is. The more you put it right. out there, more people are going to go there. No. no, so don't eat where we ate, but we ate good. It was delicious. Yeah, <laughs> not saying what kind of food it was, but it was nope. good. No, it was good food. It was so, delicious. Yeah. So, so in addition to that meal, my other joy um, that I'm going to share is a movie, which is, I, it's not, it's not a hard one to share as a joy because I think a lot of people are saying good things about it, but turning red, which is the new Pixar film um, is, is really good. And, And I was, you know, and I'd heard it was really good. So my expectations were high going in. So even given that I thought it was really a wonderful movie, it captures, um, I think like middle school energy, especially middle school girl energy really well. Um, but basically it's the, the fundamental story is it's about this young girl who um, there's a family curse that when you turn, when you come of age, you um, if you have any strong emotions of any kind, you turn into this giant red panda. Um, and it had originally been a gift to one of their ancestors when when they she needed to be able to defend her family. So the the gods or the powers that be gave her this red panda form to be able to help protect her family. Uh, but then it gets passed down to the girls uh, in the in the um, hereditary line that they turn into this red panda. So it's just about you know it's a it's about a lot of typical sort of middle school stuff but it's just really well done. And it's um, it's, it treats them both seriously and comedically in an, in a really nice blend and uh, has intergenerational stuff uh, with grandma and mom and, and daughter and talking through some of the issues of what it's like to grow up and be independent and be your own person um, as, as a young, young person. So yeah, it's great. It's it's uh it's really well done and the animation is just unbelievable. I mean, these days the animation has gotten so good. It it's but the character design is fabulous and she's got this little crew of friends that are all awesome and uh yeah, it's just great. 
Yeah, it, it is very uh, positive in so many ways. Yes. And and I really enjoyed it. We watched we watched it. I mean, it's and it's kind of a shortish movie. It's yeah. like maybe an hour and a half. And, yeah. you know, I think there's for that hour and a half it's like really dense it might be like an hour and 20 minutes and and it's so dense with like so much positivity Mm -hmm. that it's you know and i think you know we've talked about our our love for you know you talked about abbott elementary last episode and then Mm -hmm. we both talked about you know ted lasso i think there's something about that that need for some you know some positivity put some that energy back out to the world to and I, I especially you know here's here's this this character is really dealing with some some challenging stuff and and the great thing is her friends just come around her and re- and that's i think the part where i enjoyed that the most is yeah. how unique the friends were and how unique that friendship was and yeah there's there's just so much good about that movie yeah yeah that's a and good I choice think, yeah and i think those you know abbott elementary and and ted lasso and and turning red all like the idea that you can have something that's sweet without being saccharine right yeah. like it's just yeah. it's good but you don't you don't say oh this is just too much this is too sappy and silly it's it's just you know it's it's authentically great um and heartwarming so and and they're all always in some situation of adversity yeah. and and right. and they're showing how to do that um maybe not you know parallel to what you're doing or you know what we're experiencing but it's showing us ways to maybe do it you know yeah which is cool to, to do it well and to do it uh gracefully and um yeah or as gracefully as you can in the context yeah good good choice all right man well there we have but, it what uh, this i think 86 86 in the books I 86 a, in the yeah. books yeah, and, and we're not gonna. We're, we will no longer speak of the hiccup that happened between no more and eighty five. That's just yeah, what hiccup. I don't even know what I, you're talking I, about. The 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 was it the blink the, the you blink. know the 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 the, 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 the snap the, mar- the snap yeah the, <laughs> what what what, what are you talking even, about? I don't even know what you're talking about. All right, well, hey, this is Ollie and Scott, and this is Science in Between. And we'll see, see you next time. time.